All right, so Dr. Blight, talk about who you are, all those letters after your name, how you got them, and what you're doing with it. All right, thank you, Aaron. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. My experience with caregiving really began about 20 years ago when I was working in the National Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I was a disabled and elderly health policy guy within the federal Medicaid program. And my mother-in-law was diagnosed with a brain tumor the size of a golf ball. Unexpectedly, she was only 59 years old and she needed immediately immediate help. She was given six to nine months to live. We moved her into our home after they cut open her skull and removed the brain tumor. And she lived with us for about two years in our home while we watched her undergo radiation, chemotherapy. My wife had our fourth child when she was living with us and her cancer went into remission and she moved out, but she was never the same. She was in a state of constant cognitive decline. She lived for five and a half years after that brain tumor, but we were constantly going over there and helping her with all of her care related needs. Eventually, cancer took her life after five and a half years, and that was actually a blessing because she was not a complete mental vegetable when she died. She still had some semblance of her former self. Um, A year later, I opened a home care company to help families like mine, and I was able to uh, assist many different families with care-related burdens and uh, got to feel like I was really making a difference. And I decided at that point to go back to school and receive, get a doctoral degree. And my, my doctorate is in education and it's in learning. And I, I studied the process of learning, but I studied caregiving as a phenomenon of social science. And it was really here that I started to understand why caregiving is so difficult. And it started, it explained to me many of the challenges that we had with my mother-in-law previously, you know, and, and, and she had passed away. Um, I know that I would be a much better caregiver of hers today with the knowledge that I have. So today I have the opportunity to go out and talk to people about caregiving and to understand it on a deeper level And there are so many caregivers out there that are struggling. And it's not something that you're trained to do. It's something that is just thrust upon you. And there's no curriculum for it. There's no, um, you know, prep in any way. You just find yourself in the situation as a caregiver and you just do the best that you can. Uh, But when you start to understand a little bit more about caregiving as a science, and caregiving as a um, as an ev- evolving relationship with the care receiver, it becomes easier to bear. And so uh, today I, I go and I speak to groups and I do consulting for organizations that either employ caregivers or try to reach out to caregivers. Dr. Blight, you, you talked about um, some of the things that you wish you knew that would have been a better help 
uh, to your mom. But if you and and I want to get to those because I, certainly that is what every uh, parent wants to do is be a better help to their their child, their 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 parent, their spouse, their partner who who might be suffering a mental illness or an addiction or a, a, a chronic illness, chronic pain, something like this. But what I'm curious is is for you to go back and kind of relate some of the problems that came up when you weren't trained. How did you know that you were yeah. struggling with uh, being a caretaker and a caregiver? Um, and that's interesting that both of those words mean the sa- same thing. And it should be the caregiver's burden, but but caretaking and caregiving, it's the same thing. Um, it is. So, so I'm curious about some of the things that you realized it was showing up in yours and your wife's life and your household. And it was a problem. Yeah. So one thing that uh, we constantly struggled with was the, the looming uh, diagnosis that my mother-in-law had. She, you know, she had a death sentence of cancer. And as, as her family, we wanted to take care of her. We wanted her to be in our home. But the longer, as time, as time went on, I personally started uh, use, throwing around this term, which was my nuclear family. And I, I, the nuclear family was me and my wife and my children, and that's it. Not my mother-in-law. She was excluded from the nuclear family, and yet she lived in our home where the nuclear family lived. And so her presence was just constantly there. It was inescapable. And it brought it brought me down emotionally, psychologically. But I wanted her to be there. I wanted her to be there. I wanted to help her, but I just resented the fact that she was there. And I remember, you know, I would go to work. I'd, I'd work all day in this pretty high pressure job, and I'd come home tired. And I, I'd sit down at the dinner table, and I directly across from the dinner table was my mother-in-law every single night. And I resented that. And I would just look down. I got to the point that I I couldn't even look at her. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but it's true. I couldn't, I got to where I couldn't even look at her. I would just sit in, in silence at the dinner table with my rest, the rest of my family. And I would just look down and I just eat, eat like this. And I wouldn't look up because if I looked up, I saw her. And, you know, there, there was only one other time in my life where I couldn't look at someone. And it was when I had hired someone for my, for my business and, and placed them in a position of, of great trust, and they betrayed that trust. And I got to where I couldn't look at that person, and I knew I had to fire them. <laughs> so I did. I fired that employee. You can't fire your mother-in-law. You can't fire your family member. And so... <clears throat> there was just this constant internal conflict that I was experiencing where, yes, I wanted to help her. I knew that she needed us. I knew that we were helping her in ways that nobody else could, but I also resented that at the same time. And then I felt guilty because I resented that. And my wife went through a similar process, you know, Um, it was very hard for her to do this. Is it, I, I, I just led a parent weekend recently and listening to the parents say things like, um, I feel so guilty 
that I love and resent this person. And that there are some times that I just want to scream at them and throw them out of the house and strangle them and just, you know, not really strangle. But you understand what I'm saying, that that level of frustration for something like mental health problems and and dependency issues and adoption trauma and cancer. Like, we're really talking about holding two completely up, holding two opposing thoughts in the brain, which is supposed to be humanly impossible, but to love and resent, you know, you, you even said it, you're, you're, you, you wanted this woman in your home, but then she was there, you resented for her. I can imagine that the guilt and the shame of that starts to cause its own issues. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, when I look back now, I, I know that I had symptoms of depression. Uh, those went undiagnosed. I, I just, you just got through it. It was just one day at a time. And it was a, a, a test of endurance in a lot of ways, because we, you know, we knew she had, in, in the case of my mother-in-law, she had a terminal diagnosis. And we, we knew that the likelihood of her dying was there, um, but you know you never want to say, "Oh, we we just we just want it to be over." But I'll tell you what: in my home care company, I have heard uh, family members who expressed those types of sentiments, and then they hate themselves for it. I, I think I, in the I, case in the case of your audience, you know, it, it is different when it's a child, a youth who has their whole life ahead of them. And um, you want them to get better. There, there is absolutely uh, the hope for a full and complete and rich life with proper treatment and recovery. I, so when, when we begin to talk about signs, and what I'd like to do now is talk about signs and symptoms of caretaker stress and burnout, like, like knowing that you are on the path to, to a total burnout, a meltdown, a break, mm-hmm. you know, a, 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 that, that, that the burden is real and that there are signs and symptoms of it. And you just talked about the first one, depression. And the first one that I have on my list also talks about anxiety and irritability. Like, like, is this something you experience? And what does that mean to you as you run a home care company now? How do you train your, your staff, your nurses, your, your care workers to recognize that they're dealing with anxiety, depression, and irritability? Well, um, the symptoms are, uh, there's actually a, uh, oh, I wish that I had it right off the top of my head, Aaron. There, there's a website on uh, compassion fatigue. That's another term that's used in the literature and in the research, like caregiver, caretaker's burden. Um, but the symptoms are increased stress, increased irritability, depression, um, disconnect from life. Uh, one of the things that I, I was able to do um, in connection with my, my doctoral research, I was able to get involved with um, Dr. Rhonda Montgomery, who's an applied gerontologist and has studied family caregivers for her entire career. And uh, she identified certain uh, characteristics of family caregivers that are very common. Uh, depression is uh, clinical depression rates are quadruple, quadruple the national average among caregivers. 
that's a staggering statistic. When you think about the rates of depression in the general population, family caregivers experience depression at quadruple those rates. Um, there's also the, the burden of, of the, the objective burden associated with caregiving. Caregiving dis displaces. What do, you, what, do you mean, what do you mean by objective burden? Well, caregiving displaces your time, time that you would be spending doing other things, things that you would probably prefer to be doing. That could be work, that could be recreational activities, that could be attending um, community groups or attending church or playing tennis or, you know, whatever the case may be things that you would rather be doing, you you can't necessarily do as much anymore because you have to spend and invest all of this time caring for your um, your loved one. And so uh, that's just a, a matter of fact. Your time is displaced. <clears throat> and uh, there's also the relationship burden associated with caregiving. Um, caregiving tests your relationship and and when we get when we start talking about the caregiving code, which is a little bit of what I talk about, I can go into some of that. But your relationship changes because of caregiving. Are you so, talking about the relationship with other partners and and spouses and other children, or are you talking about with the person who's suffering themselves? I'm talking especially about the relationship with the care receiver with your family member who's receiving care, you become, um, uh, you have to adapt to their needs. And so your role within the relationship will change. And so, and I don't know if, are we ready to, do you want me to go into a little bit about uh, the caregiving code? I want you to, and I want to also address before we do, what you just said, because what blows me away, and I remember having this experience when you and I were speaking at the conference, where you talked about the relationship changing, you know, with, with the person who's suffering from a dis-ease or a dysfunction. And it, it, it was suddenly staggering to me that I have spent almost two decades working with parents whose children need them to be something other than a parent. You need to be a nurse. You need to be a doctor. You need to be a therapist. You need to be a counselor. You need to be a coach. You need to be a trainer. And none of these parents are qualified to do this. And I say that, that even if the parent had a, had a PhD in education, if they, if they, if they had a, a, if they were a psychiatrist themselves, they are not qualified, and that's the word that really stood out when we originally talked. Like, what parent is qualified, and what child is qualified to be a caretaker of someone who is in such a primal relationship with them? This is your child. What makes you think you're the best one to tell whether their sentiments on, on being suicidal are accurate? You're so caught up in the emotional experience of what your child just said. So is, is that, like, like, there's a really double-edged sword. You're supposed to take care of your dying parent, but you're not a doctor. You're supposed to take care of your kid who's, who's addicted to video games. You're not a therapist or an addiction specialist, and you, people, People study this stuff for 10, 20 years when they get good at it, and you're just beginning, and you have an emotional overwhelm on top of it. How do you, I guess the word is begin to justify 
um, taking care of your own family member and assuming you're going to do it well? Well, I think that in terms of uh, being justified simply as by the nature of the relationship that you have with that person, father, son, mother, daughter, mother, son, you know, um, father, daughter, whatever the case may be, you're there. You are, you are inextricably connected to that person. And hopefully there's a love there that binds you together and a desire for the welfare of your family member. You want them to be well. At the same time, you need to recognize their, uh, your, your own limitations. And some of the, the therapy, the treatments, the interventions that you're talking about that that individual would need should be provided by skilled care professionals, people who are licensed and trained to deal with uh, psychological um, substance abuse, um, you know, physical disorders. There's no question that skilled care needs to be delivered properly by a licensed professional. At the same time, you as a family member can have an enormous impact on your loved one's life, on the trajectory of their their experience. And by showing them love and concern and by being there, you are providing care. It's, It's informal. It's not skilled care, but you're helping them to know that, that they, they matter, that they belong, that uh, they are part of a family, and that they're not disowned because of this condition that they didn't ask for, that they didn't seek out. Um, and so that's all important on the path to wellness. You said you you said something that I think is so massively important that they didn't seek out. There is no child who grew up saying one day I'm going to become an addict. Like that's not something. One day I'm going to have uh, uh, borderline personality disorder. One day when I grow up I'm going to be bipolar. Like no one, no child, no no person sets out to do that. Okay, let's talk about the the. This this the, the caregiving code. Let's let's. This is based on, um, this is based on a, a book and article you wrote. I can't remember. I I want to say yeah. So this is really based on my research, and it's it's uh, a combination of the the research that that has been performed by others. It's my own research uh, in connection with my doctoral degree and my dissertation. And it's taking scientific and theoretical knowledge and trying to distill that into a very understandable uh, method of remembering and recognizing what caregiving is. So so really, a lot of these ideas are are mine. I have to give credit to to the researchers that have studied caregiving uh, because I've learned from them. But I've also done a lot of thinking about how can I how can I present and talk about caregiving in a way that people understand, because there are things that are felt but not expressed, things that are um, things that are not visible but are there, and um, this is something that I think really helps people when they start to look at caregiving through as, as a code, 
you think about what a code is, you know, think about Morse code, for example. Um, I don't know Morse code, but I've, I've heard it. I've seen people do the, the Morse code with the tapping, but it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. If I, if I had the code, if I knew the code, then it would make a lot more sense to me. I'd be able to process it and follow it better. And so that's why I call this the caregiving code because it's, it's there it's present in your life as a caregiver, but you don't necessarily understand what is happening to you and why is this so difficult. And um, so this helps to explain it. All right. Well, let's get into it. What is the, what is this code? How do you, uh, yeah. how do you define, how, how do you define, are these steps, are these things that you need to do or things you need to know or both? Uh, it's both. And uh, I really break down the caregiving code. To, into four four words. Each word begins with the letter R. Uh, those words are rolls, R-O-L-E-S, not like a breakfast biscuit, <laughs> but a role, <laughs> a role that we play in, in the social world. <clears throat> Relationships, realities, and rewards. And um, so the, the first one that I'll talk about for a minute is, is roles. A role is something that we occupy, right, in the social world. And when you think about roles, you might think about actors, actors in a, in a theatrical production. And I like to use the analogy of a, of a play because I think it, it really illustrates the point very well. If you think about uh, caregiving, there are two roles to play, the caregiver and the care receiver, right? You can't have one without the other. There is no caregiver if there's not a care receiver. And so in this play, if caregiving was a play, the, the lead actor is the care receiver. The care receiver is the first person to step out on that stage. And the screenplay is written by the changing health conditions of the care receiver. The caregiver is a supporting actor. The caregiver also has the same screenplay and within that screenplay, the lines of the caregiver are also written. But here's the thing about this particular play. Neither the care receiver or the caregiver auditioned for this role. The role was just just thrust upon them because of the condition of the care receiver. Like you said earlier, Nobody wants to say, I, you know, I want to be an addict. I want to have bipolar. I want to have cancer. No, nobody aspires to those positions. Nobody's going to grow up and say, yeah, I want to grow up and take care of my father who's an alcoholic. And no parent says, or no person says, one day I want to grow up and take care of my son who has borderline personality disorder and is addicted to video games. That makes total sense. That's right. That's right. And, you know, when I think about my own my own experience when I was telling you about sitting at the dinner table with my, my mother-in-law and sort of that, that internal conflict that I had about the whole thing. I wanted my nuclear family to have the starring role. And, and in a sense, we were all supporting actors for her drama. And it made me, uh, you know, just when you think about caregiving that way, it, it makes you appreciate and understand a little bit better how you should be 
processing the experience and how you should be supporting uh, and thinking about your relationship to the care receiver. And now a word from our sponsors. As a suicide and abuse survivor, Johnny Crowder spent his formative years searching for resources to help him cope with his mental health issues, ranging from OCD and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. And after nearly a decade of clinical treatment, volunteer peer counseling, and public advocacy, he now relies on the strategies he shares through Cope Notes to live a happier, healthier life. Johnny Crowder is the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, and I met up with him to talk about what what he's created. And honestly, parents, I think every teen, every person who suffers from anxiety or depression or any mental health issue should have Cope Notes on their phone. Check this out. How did you come up with Cope Notes? Where did all this come from? It's a classic entrepreneur story of someone looking for something for a decade, realizing it doesn't exist, and then fashioning one out of pure frustration. <laughs> that the option wasn't available before. Yeah, so how does it work? The way I picture it is that people are getting a text a day or like what's happening? Yeah, so we'll send a user one text a day, random time, you don't know when you'll get it or what it'll say. And these texts are psychology facts or advice or a question that you can respond and journal to. And over time, we're just trying to help you mold your brain into something that works with you instead of against you. Instead of us throwing someone on our back and carrying them, we want to make sure that we're putting them in a position where they can carry themselves. Because independence is the goal, right? When something happens, you don't want to turn to something and say, fix me. You want to go, I know what to do to handle this now. So the, the concept of it being cope notes, are you seeing this as a, a healthy coping mechanism? Or is this to replace the, the old bad ones? It's an answer to bad habits compounding on each other over time. So just like we can accidentally turn to the wrong thing over and over again, Cope Notes presents you with a new thing every day. So Cope Notes isn't the resource. We're connecting you with 150 other ways to think about what you're going through. So you can actually buy it for someone else and it starts showing up on their phone? So our gift subscription is one of our most popular options. And it you can personalize it. You can say, you know, from mom, love you. Or you can leave it anonymous and that person will start receiving the text messages right away. What's the feedback been like, Johnny? That's the part that's really been the most encouraging for me, I think. People have made massive decisions in life based on one of our texts. And sometimes it's so clearly from the user's interpretation of the text. It just mentions popcorn and someone checks themselves into rehab for an eating disorder. Is there a Facebook page that people can check into your community? We have a public Facebook page. It's just Cope Notes. It should be pretty easy to find. Is this going around the world? I got international listeners. We're number one in Australia, number three in Canada. Like, are they going to be able to do this? Yes. Believe it or not, even though you live in another country and it's text messages, you would think that it would be really complicated, but we have an international system set up. We're in 75 countries across the globe right now. So odds are wherever you live, we're already serving people in your country. That's Johnny Crowder, lead singer of Prison and the founder of Cope Notes. To activate your two free weeks of Cope Notes, go to beyondriskandback.copenotes.com. Dot com. That's beyond risk and back dot cope notes dot com. Go get your free two weeks. Okay, let's get back to the program. Okay. 
we have a new relationship that's been established. We find out neither of us wanted these roles. We're hoping for them. We're planning on them. None of us aspired to be in this thing. Do the Does the subject of roles also go to the other family members? You're going to be responsible for this part of the care. You're going to be responsible for that part of the care, that you are actually divvying up the responsibilities. It seems to me that one person will take the lion's share. Is that healthy for the family or should everybody play a part? And, and I mean, that's an obvious answer, yeah. but should everybody play a specific part? Well, I've seen, you know, just in my experience with a home care company, I've seen a lot of families um, confronted with caregiving situations. And I've seen a range of responses. I've seen some family members where they truly try to um, spread out the caregiving responsibilities. I've seen other families where there is one individual who, as you said, takes the lion's share and does, does almost everything. Um, and I've seen some families that just completely disappear and are in denial and they don't want to do anything and they're not engaged at all. And um, the, the relationships that, uh, that you have with the loved one who needs care, they are going to change because of the, 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 the condition of the care receiver <clears throat> And that also can carry over to your relationships with other family members because it really ends up being a family emergency, a family crisis, a family trial. And the family members, the families that are the most effective in dealing with it are able to, to sort of band together and work together and share, share the burden with each other and cooperatively uh, work together to support the care receiver, the family member that needs help until uh, that period of time is over. But it doesn't always work out that way. <clears throat> the other thing that I would say is that um, if there's one family member who is kind of the primary caregiver, um, <clears throat> the other family members who are, you know, in the picture but aren't the primary caregiver, they are unlikely to understand the burden of the primary caregiver. The primary caregiver has a constant, never-ending uh, worry, anxiety, concern, sense of responsibility and ownership for the outcomes associated with the care receiver, the loved one. And it does not end. It, it weighs heavily on the primary caregiver's mind. And if the, you know, let's say that you have a, a, a brother or sister who, you know, visits once in a while, <clears throat> they might catch a glimpse of what's happening and, and, but they probably don't have any clue about how difficult the caregiving role is for the primary caregiver. So when you talk about relationships being the second R, you've alluded to a couple different things. Let's let's clarify what you mean by the R of the relationships. Yeah. Are you talking about people's relationship to the caregiver, to each other, all of that? Yeah. So caregiving is a series of role-based transitions that occur within the relationship between the caregiver and the care receiver. So 
the in the case of family members, when you have, let's just say that it's a, a mother taking care of her daughter with a substance abuse problem, okay, because that's kind of, you know, um, a common uh, issue with your audience members. So for the for the entire life of the uh, of the daughter, you know, you you've been a mother, and being a mother has deep and profound meaning. Being a mother is rooted in all the way back, you know, to to the prenatal care, to the time that that little girl was in in your womb, right? And you had all of these uh, emotions and feelings and and physical experiences, giving birth watching her grow up, teaching her, um, changing her diapers, taking her to school, you know, um, watching her develop and her talents and, and everything about being a mother, it's a, it's a unique role, right? It's a, it's a cherished and, and important role in life. It's probably, you know, the most important role that you, that you ever have. And it's just so uh, meaningful to be a to be a mother. <clears throat> well, when caregiving enters the picture, um, you start to do things in your relationship with your daughter that you never had to do before as a mother. And some of those things that you're doing, they might creep in a little bit, and you may not even really think about it or recognize it. You're just doing it. But eventually, in this series of role-based transitions, as your daughter needs more and more care from you, you start to realize that you're, you're performing more like caregiving tasks instead of motherly tasks. And you're realizing because you're doing these different types of tasks, your interactions with your daughter are different. The things that you're saying to your daughter are different. The things that you're thinking about your daughter are different. The things that you're doing with your daughter are different. And uh, Montgomery and Kozlowski, who developed family caregiver identity theory, they described this process with a series of pie charts. And, you know, on in the pie chart, you have one portion of it, which is which represents the amount of time and the relationship that you spend in your family role. And then the other part of the pie, the pie chart is the, the amount of time and the relationship and in the interactions that you spend in the caregiving role. And as over time, as the caregiving role and the caregiving responsibilities crowd out the maternal role and the maternal responsibilities, you start to realize, oh my gosh, I am as much a caregiver as I am a mother, or I am more caregiver than mother. My relationship with this person is completely different than what it used to be. And when you find yourself in that situation, it presents an identity discrepancy. An identity discrepancy meaning you're starting to ask, well, who am I? Who am I in this relationship anymore? I'm not who I used to be. And depending on how you feel about that, it can have a dramatic impact on your, your psychological welfare. It seems to me that this is where a lot of the resentment, uh, frustration, anger towards 
the the identified patient in the it is going to start because if if we signed up for one role right i'm going to be this kid's father and now all of a sudden i got to be this kid's father and the mother because the mother has decided that she wants a different life and is no longer involved with the kids and my kid through you know attachment trauma has started to develop uh, you know uh, addiction tendencies and dependency uh, traits and now i'm being a counselor and i'm trying because i want to talk to my kid and see if by processing emotion and like like you didn't sign up for that i didn't sign up for it i have a brand new relationship and this is where this is where the frustration's going to start coming out. I just want to go back Absolutely. to being dad. I just want to okay, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes. And now, and so that's that's why this can be so hard for family members. So the next one you have on your Well, let, let me just say let me just yeah. take take that one step further Aaron before we move to the next one. Yeah. So so I know that this sounds a little bit um abstract and uh, theoretical, but there are basically two different ways that people come to terms with the caregiver role and continue in the caregiver role. And a lot of it can, can be facilitated through counseling. I would just encourage any of your listeners who are really struggling with the type of thing that we're talking about to reach out and talk to a, a licensed counselor who can help them kind of go through this process and understand what's happening in their, in their life and in their mind and help them to, to transition into something that'll help them with their mental health a little bit more. But effectively, there are one of two um, ways that the family member copes with this change in, in caregiving, in, in the care relationship and can continue on. And those are either assimilation or accommodation. And uh, it's rooted in, in learning theory, Piaget. But uh, either the family caregiver says, okay, I know that historically I've been a mother to this, uh, this, um, to, to this person, my daughter. But if being a mother, being a mother to a daughter that has a substance abuse problem means that I include caregiving responsibilities I, I alter the definition of motherhood to incorporate caregiving responsibilities. And I just say, this is just part of being a mom to an addict. And I'm okay with that. Or the person, so that's one way. You just say, okay, I'm incorporating in my mind the definition, the responsibilities of care to the definition of being a mom. Or the other alternative is I say, okay, when my daughter is an addict, I'm just not gonna be a mom as much. I'm just gonna be a caregiver. I'm gonna transition into that role and I am okay with that. The key, the key is that you are okay with that. Dr. Blight, do you feel like the, the, the parent has to actually kind of consciously make that declaration or they can just you know assume and absorb that, that concept? I, th I think that most, most people who are able to, to handle it, they just assume, they just absorb it. They do it without thinking about it. But by bringing awareness to it, it allows you to realize, wow, this is what I'm going through. And when I think about it in these terms, can I make that transition? And is it going to help me? It's actually going to help you uh, 
redefine that relationship with your loved one to the point that you're going to be able to sustain yourself through the trials of caregiving much better. Is this, this feels everything we've been talking about, and I don't think we've actually said the word, but this feels like that this third R of, of the caregiver, caregiving code is the reality that you really are beginning to embrace the reality of what's going on and consciously, um, consciously making the choice to be this role and have this kind of relationship. Is that what you mean by the third R, reality? Yeah, there's, um, <clears throat> that's part of it. It also, it also gets to a little bit to the, the fourth R, rewards. Um, realities, what we really are talking about there is just honesty about the realities of caregiving. For example, when we were talking earlier about the anxiety and the stress and the guilt and the, the resentment that comes because of caregiving, all of that type of challenge and, and emotion that, that bubbles up through caregiving, let's be honest, that it's real, that it's there and it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're a bad family member. It just is what it is. It also um, seems that part of part of the resentment, it just just to tap into this for another quick second, not just that you didn't sign up for the role, but the feeling that all this effort you're putting into it is not amounting to any change. They still have cancer, cancer. They're still struggling with drugs. They're still sneaking video games on their phone as they break through all the controls you've put on the internet. That 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 that's another resentment piece as well. It's not just that you didn't sign up for it. It's that you didn't sign up for it. You're going to do it because you love them, and now it's not working. Right, and a lot of that is it's out of your control. You don't you don't you're not you 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 can't necessarily control the outcome here for your your loved one, and uh, that's another reality of it. So there's there there's an acceptance of saying you know yeah this. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm going to I'm going to continue. Another thing that I talk about in and and there's there probably is a, a comparison in the younger population, but I've worked largely with older people, people who are aging, and it has to do with our culture and what our culture says about the human body. And I think in in the case of maybe your audience, what our culture says about mental health and the stigmas that are associated with dysfunction, whether it's physical dysfunction in the human body or mental dysfunction of the mind. You know, our, our society, I like to use the example of, uh, of adult incontinence because you're not supposed to do that, right? <laughs> You're not even supposed to talk about that. Right. With an aging population, um, everybody, you know, as you get older, your, your body fails, your eyesight fails. That's one of the first things. So what do you do? You get glasses or you get contact lenses, right? Or, you know, your ears fail. You get a hearing aid. Your heart fails. You get, you get a triple bypass. Your knees fail. You get, you get a knee replacement, right? I mean, all of these body parts fail, and, and we talk about the body parts failing, but what we don't talk about are the bladder and the bowel, because that's culturally taboo. We, we're not supposed to talk about that. 
But guess what? The bladder and the bowel, they also fail, just like the rest of the body. And when those parts of the body fail, it's embarrassing, it's marginalizing, it makes the person that has those failures feel less than human. And in some cases, even the family members who are caring for loved ones are embarrassed. They feel marginalized, they feel stigmatized because they're associated with that individual with these problems. And all that is, it's, it's unhealthy, false cultural assumptions about the human body. The human body is imperfect. We have all kinds of health needs and it's okay. We shouldn't feel less than human because our, our body or our mind isn't functioning exactly the way that it's supposed to. So in terms of the realities of caregiving, I think it's important for caregivers and care receivers to recognize that this is the real world, this is real life, and these things happen and it's okay. You should not in any way feel like this is your fault, feel like you should be marginalized, feel like you can't um, you know, interact with people in society in the same way that you always did. So now, now we start to enter into your final R, which feels like such a, uh, this feels a million miles away for a lot of the parents that I work with. And, you know, this is, this is the hard part and this is the rewards. Like, you know, when you're talking about reality and stuff, there's a level of compassion that you can start to, I know, I know I felt myself starting to feel compassion towards, you know, putting myself in the shoes of a parent who's truly struggling with their child and drugs. And suddenly you're just like, yeah, you know what the reality of it is that People do suffer from dependency issues and people do suffer from mental health issues and it's happening in your family. And most likely if they're suffering from either of those issues, it's happened before. So that's the reality of it. And being able to sit into the truth of it, despite that the roles have changed, the relationship has shifted. The reality of it is that this happens. And now you're, you're telling me next there's some rewards to this. That, that I know, feels a thousand miles away to the parents. So explain that. So the longer that you continue in the caregiving role and in caregiving responsibilities, you start to realize how much you're learning from the care receiver. The whole experience teaches us what it means to be human. Caregiving... Um, it tests our ability to love. It tests our ability to demonstrate love, to show love, and to feel love. But what you find, especially in family relationships, as you persist, that your capacity to love increases. Your capacity to forgive increases. And your capacity to empathize with others who are in similar situations increases. You have a greater ability to relate to people that have similar problems. You connect with people on a much deeper level. The meaning and the purpose of your life deepens. And you also have the, the confidence of knowing that, you know, your loved one has 
observe your steadiness and your endurance and your perseverance. Your loved one, even though they may not express it, knows that you have endured this with them. And that means everything. So if and when your loved one gets better, your relationship is richer, fuller, deeper. And uh, you can say that, you know, you've done everything that you possibly can for your loved one. So some of the greatest lessons about being a human being and caring for each other are found in caregiving. You wouldn't experience those things without this trial. I mean, it's, it's the most honest and pure kind of relationship you can have. Is that one that's built in adversity and in struggle and in brutal honesty. And that's, and it's, that's and it's selfless. And it's a, yeah. it's a selfless service. Caregiving is selfless there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I always say it's like, it's like the eternal 12th step. Like our job is to provide hope. And sometimes when someone is struggling with addiction, dependency, cancer, that's it. Comfort, hope, it's, it's in the relationship. It's, it's, we, we solve problems. That's, that's what you do. That's what I do. But it's truly prior to solving a problem, there has to be a relationship. Not just with a person, yeah. but with a support team, with, with, with your own personal help, and with, with the patient themselves. And an honest, transparent, open relationship. I agree. All right. Very well said, Aaron. Yeah, Dr. Blight, let's let's give let's give parents I mean, because there's parents out there are not only dealing with this with their kids, but they're dealing it with it with their parents too. How does someone connect with you? Should they have some questions about this or connect to any of the research that you've put out there, social media, anything like that? How do they find you? So I do have a website. It's caregivingkinetics.com. And Kinetics is spelled K-I-N-E-T-I-C-S, caregivingkinetics.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm a reluctant tweeter. (laughs) I I haven't fully embraced the the Twitter thing, but uh, I am on Twitter. And sometimes I like to answer questions on Quora, uh, Q-U-O-R-A. I really like that format where people can write in any question and anybody can answer so I could be found there as well. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Aaron Blight from caregivingkinetics.com. You can also find Dr. Aaron Blight on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Quora. Dr. Blight, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. And I just want to commend you for the great work that you're doing. I know that you're helping a lot of people through this podcast and also through your, your residential services. So hats off to you. Thank you so much. Parents, look, this thing is real. There, Look up. Look up caretaker's burden. He talked about quadruple rates of depression. Don't just take my word for it. Realize that there is, this is documented things that paramedics, firefighters, police officers, nurses, doctors, mental health workers, therapists. I have talked to other therapists who do trauma therapy, especially for people involved in school shootings, and they need therapy themselves. This is the part where you recognize that 
when you finally do get to the point where you are taking care of your children, because remember, you got to take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third. Remember, by the time you get to taking care of your children, despite being in the best possible place you could be, you are putting yourself under a level of stress and a level of intensity and a level of exhaustion and anxiety and depression. You're going to start re overreacting to minor nuisances. You're going to have trouble concentrating, drinking, smoking, eating. These things are going to become a challenge where maybe they weren't. It was totally casual before. You're going to start cutting back on your leisure activities. These are all signs and symptoms of what Dr. Blight is talking about when this stress and pressure gets too high. So make sure you do the homework and get to know the reality of the caretaker's burden. I want to thank Kristen Walker, the boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio, also the, the host of the podcast, Mental Health News Radio. And I thank her every time because she's one of the most amazing podcasters and amazing supports of our show, but of like 50 plus podcaster shows. She is the boss of the network and she's amazing. So Kristen, thank you for what you do. My daughter, Maya, for being my marketing guru. My son, Dylan, for being the producer and the music that you hear is done by him. So thanks guys, I love you both. And my guest, Dr. Aaron Blight, from caregivingkinetics.com. Take care of yourself first. Take care of your adult relationship second. Take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. Parents, thanks for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. And we'll see you again in another episode. If you have seen Beyond Risk and Back on any of the five major social media sites, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. Your Cause Consulting specializes in marketing companies that have something going on bigger than just running their business. They have a cause. If you'd like to contact Your Cause Consulting, go to yourcauseconsulting at gmail.com. All the sound and the music was engineered and created by Deepin Productions. To reach Deepin Productions, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com.